This morning we will look at Romans 8, verses 1 to 17. And we are in a short series uh, looking at the resurrection. We obviously started that on Easter Sunday, the first week of Easter, and every subsequent week of Easter, which mirrors Jesus' 40 days before his ascension. And what we are doing is we're looking at, I think, a really challenging concept, and that is what, what does the resurrection mean for you and I in this life? We know what it means in glory. We understand what it means in our justification, that is that he conquered death, so the, the penalty of the law has been removed. But what does it mean in the medium, in the middle time uh, of sanctification? That's what we're examining and so we started with um, Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians 15, toward the end, where Paul says, um, "The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law." And what he is saying there, and what we need to keep ourselves reminded of, is that death is not that last moment of a flat line on a screen at, a, at the hospital. It's the, it's the separation from God. And that separation begins with Adam and Eve and is passed on to everybody that's descended from Adam and Eve. So we are born, in a way, dead in our trespasses. We are born apart from God, and yet what Christ has done is rescued us and saved us, and that's what we want to process. What does that mean, then, if, if this mystery of life has been given to us? How does that look? So we've been looking at Romans 6, 7, and 8. Last week in chapter 7, we um, looked at Paul really wrestling with the law. And once the law became real to him, he wasn't aware or he, he, was, he was aware of his own sin and, and his wrestling with the law. And he cries out, who will rescue me toward the end of seven? Who will rescue me, this wretched man that I am? Who will save me and deliver me, this body of death? And he answers in verse 25 of chapter seven, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And what he's saying is so important that for the rest of our lives, we are in a war, we are in a battle. There is good news, the, the flesh, though our sinful flesh doesn't diminish, that is the, the, the old man, our actual ability, our bodies to follow the law increases. He says that in chapter 8, that he brings life to your mortal bodies, that we are actually able to follow God, but never in such a way that stands alone from the Lord. And so the mystery of mysteries is that we were never designed to go it alone, and that really is the essence of death, and that's quite honestly the essence of what most of us think of in the Christian life. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to do this. And so... I'm going to just mention a, a couple of statements from one of my mentors, Jack Miller. He says, cheer up. He wrote, these, he would say these over and over. Cheer up. God's grace is greater than you ever hoped. But cheer up. You are far worse than you ever imagined. Cheer up. The Spirit works mightily in your weakness. And that's where we come today. The normal Christian life. Last week we talked about the battle, the warfare. Uh, this week we're going to talk about the normal Christian life is life in the Spirit and for Romans 8 to make any sense, especially verse 1, we have to have come to this place where we've seen both the glory of God and his law has come to life. And equally, 
the, the, the depth of sin we struggle with. That battle has to be real for Romans 8, 1 to make any sense. So let's read these verses together. Romans 8, verses 1 to 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, and he's talking now to Christians, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, he leaves open this possibility, though, that there are people who aren't Christians. He goes on to say, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also Give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father. What rich and glorious language we could read this and meditate this on for the rest of our lives here on earth and continue to be fed by the truths, seeing new vistas and new heights of glory in these words. I pray for these next few minutes there would be some clarity that your spirit would, would open the eyes of our hearts wherever we are spiritually, whether believer needing nourishment or an unbeliever needing salvation. Open the eyes, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. The, the real key, I think, to, to understanding what Paul's getting at in the Spirit is found in verse 11 when he says, if you walk in the Spirit, the Spirit will give life to your mortal bodies. Now, the final result of the human life in heaven is immortality. In 1 Corinthians, Paul covers that. The goal is not our mortal bodies to be made alive here But rather, we want the immortal body. However, this side of heaven, we live in our bodies. 
And we're never going to be disembodied people, spirits floating around. We want our heavenly body. Right? And so Paul is teaching this radical concept that though this side of heaven, you'll never be made perfect. That happens when we go to heaven or Christ returns. You can have growth. You can have healing. You can have redemption, though it will always fall short of perfection. But that doesn't matter because we're not under the law. So I was, there's so many thoughts and ways I'm trying to express this. The illustration, and I ran it by Jason for his approval, is this. All my life, whether it was through movies, especially movies or TV shows, I've been terrified of, of prison. And if you don't know, Jason uh, has been in prison. Um, that's part of his testimony. It's how he met Jesus. He's very open and willing to talk, and I would recommend you ask him questions about it. We have very many conversations about that time of his life. But my experience of it's only through movies or maybe through news articles or news shows, and it just is terrifying to have your freedoms taken away. And that's really how Paul describes this life. If you, if you look, he says, we are led by the Spirit to not fall back into captivity and back into fear. What he's saying is your, your state when you're born on this planet is captivity. We are in prison. And when Christ comes, he sets us free from that prison. We're just not yet free to leave the prison. This is a metaphor I'm trying to work on. So the idea is you're in prison and you have a sentence. But let's pretend you don't know when that ends. It has like a range. But the warden comes to you and says, okay, this is a little bit of an odd. It has some like, things that aren't realistic at all. A, when you get out, like everything you lost is wiped away. You, don't, you get your years back, you get your missed birthdays and all the things you missed from, that all is back. So you walk out as good, if not better than before. I know that's not a perfect picture of glory, but just follow me. But the problem is you're still here. And there's a lot of things to be scared of in prison. The second beauty is you've been given like three people to guard you in your life here. So you can't be hurt in prison anymore. Now, you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to get out and I'm safe. And your prison cell looks a little better and you start to get like furniture and some nice things that remind you of home. Okay. Here's the point. Life this side of heaven is a longing for leaving, but it's also a, an escape or a, a release from the prison we're in. The problem with the prison that, that this world exists in or that exists in this world is that everyone seems to not mind it at all. They seem to love it. And yet the Christian wakes up and looks around and says, no, like there is so much more freedom. There is so much more goodness. There is so much more holiness. And yet we're in a bind. And the bind is it's not all here yet, but it's partially here. The Spirit has come. And, and the Spirit will progressively change you and shape you. And so the primary shift that's happening in Romans 8 from the rest of Romans is this. Chapters 1 to 5, Paul does a beautiful job of explaining how all have fallen short, how, how the wrath of God as a punishment for our sin has fallen on all of mankind, and everyone needs the gospel. They need faith. And he, and he does such a profound job in that, that in chapter 6, he anticipates the question, can we go on sinning, that grace may abound? And so 6, 7, and 8, he's really fleshing out what it means particularly these gospel truths of one through five. And in eight, seven and eight, but especially eight, he's saying what you need and the, and the secret sauce 
to understanding all of this is you need the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Holy Spirit, something has changed fundamentally about you and about me. And that's what we're going to look at. I'm going to try to process that with us this morning quickly. I know there's a lot of questions. But the Holy Spirit brings heaven to us, partially. Not all of what we're going to get in heaven comes, but he's the first fruits. We get heaven to us, and specifically bringing life to our mortal bodies. So let's look at that. The two broad points are who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? There are a lot of misunderstandings in our culture about the Holy Spirit, and I can't fix them all. All I can do is tell you what the scriptures teach about the Spirit and hope you'll believe that's the truth. Right? The Holy Spirit is how we are saved. When you study theology and you study what Jesus did and you study who Christ is in the gospel, you, you come away with beautiful information, but it has to become applied. How does that come into you? And so Paul is very clear, the Holy Spirit is who applies it to you. So who is the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, let's look at a few of the verses in the middle of our passage. I don't know if you can pull it back up. We're going to be looking at parts of 9 uh, and 10. In verse 9 he says, um, You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. So there's this concept of being in the Spirit. But then he says this fascinating thing. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So not only are you in the Spirit... The Spirit dwells in you. You hear some mystery going on. But the other mystery is it's the Spirit of God. And he says that a few times. In verse 11, he says, If the Spirit of him who raised Christ or raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he says it again, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give you life. So now he's saying the Spirit is the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, so it's still God, the Father. So the Spirit of the God, the Father, dwells in you. And you and him. But in the very same verse, 9, after saying the spirit of God dwells in you, he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Do you hear the Trinitarian formula? Christ's spirit dwells in you. And then look at verse 10. In just mystery upon mystery, he says simply, but if Christ is in you. Do you hear that? Christ is in you. So why does that matter? Theology can often water down things. We can often miss things with our theology if it's not healthy. So we come to the Trinity, and we know that you're never supposed to consider one person in the Trinity in isolation from the other members, right? So whatever we do with the Trinity, it's so mysterious. What we never want to do is tear down the power and the beauty and the reality that the Holy Spirit in you means you now have the triune God mysteriously dwelling in your soul. And that is the truth of any person that is in Christ, that is a Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian without that. If you don't have that, you're playing a game. But if you have the Holy Spirit, you are a Christian. Now, if you remember in, in John 14, Philip, you know, Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's going to go away. I'm going to the Father. And what does Philip say? Show us the Father, and that will be enough. And Jesus says, Philip, I've been with you. So might I invite us to please, when we think of the Spirit, picture, if you will, at least Jesus 
He is the visible image of an invisible God. So though we can imagine the Holy Father and the Holy Spirit, those are hard to imagine. We do want to remember the triune God. Please understand Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, walks and dwells and is in your soul. And that is what Christianity is. Anything short of that, and we're doing an injustice to it. We sang this song, Abide With Me. And what is Jesus preparing his disciples for there as well? And what are we singing? That the normal human life that needs to come to all human beings is a reunification to the way we were designed, which is a perfect union with the triune God. That's what was taken away at the fall. And anything short of that is it just putting makeup on a pig. It's, it's attempts to get better, but the, the problem still remains. And what Jesus is offering us in his spirit is union to himself. And it's completely purchased for us by the cross. Now in our passage, you'll see a little bit later, um, we have these, what does the spirit do? This is now, that was who the spirit is. The rest of our time is, what does he do? He applies redemption to our lives, okay? And I just want to warn us all that the normal Christian life is one of conflict. That's why we sang this song by John Newton, I asked the Lord that I might grow. I love that song. We've, sing, we've sung it with different tunes. But the words written by John, oh, I don't know that John Newton wrote the tune, but he wrote the original words, of course. He talks about in that song how he asked the Lord for growth, which is a great beginning. The Spirit shows you the law. You see the law. Paul understood coveting and longed to not covet. You see that. You ask the Lord to help you. And he prays for that. And then he says, it almost drove me to despair. He says, I hoped that in some favored hour, at once, the Lord would answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, Subdue my sin and give me rest. So I see the law, I see the law and the beauty of God, and I see my struggle, my sin, and I say, God, take that away. And John Newton's like hoping that God would say, Got this, and just brush it away, and you give the double thumbs up and walk on. He says, No, that's not how we do it. Because your problem, he says, are your schemes. We design schemes. That's the law. That's what Paul's been saying. We, we create, a, you know, again, using the prison theme, you go to prison, like you see these mafia movies or maybe actual stories if you watch true crime. They go to prison and just do the same stuff they did out here, just in here. They start having their little, you know, groups and methods, and it's the same schemes. We all have schemes. And when the Spirit comes, he calls us, to no longer use those schemes because those are the law of sin and death. These ways we try to feel better about ourselves, these methods we employ to to improve are simply man-made laws where we're trying to follow certain things to feel better about ourselves when they don't work. So what does the Spirit do? First, the Spirit comes and says, here's the law, and he brings it to life. In Romans 7, Paul brings up the law of coveting. That's a profound law. I can't spend a lot of time on it this week. You can listen to last week's sermon. But do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not bear false witness. At least have the illusion of you can keep those, which Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. You, they're much larger than you realize. 
But coveting, like how do I stop? If you read that law in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 of the Ten Commandments, the tenth, it's do not covet your neighbor's wife, you know, oxen, home, property, or anything. It's just open-ended. Don't want anything with an inordinate desire. So the law comes to life, and it's beautiful, and you have hope, and that's what the Spirit does. But our problem, Romans 7 tells us, is our flesh is like condemned. I mean, our flesh is like, you, you didn't keep any of this. Do you see this? You're failing. And our temptation is to dumb down the law and make it achievable like the Pharisees. Or we go out and just say, forget the whole thing, which is another type of law. And what the Spirit offers us, verse 1 of chapter 8, is no condemnation. But why? Because Christ Jesus came and he kept the law. And as a sacrifice, his sacrifice paid the penalty for our sin. And when the Spirit comes on us and applies the blood of Christ, you are no longer under law. Nothing can condemn you. He cancels the penalty of sin. Okay? That's what the Lord, that's what the Holy Spirit does. But I just want to remind us that though the penalty of sin is there, the actuality of our body's temptation and actual committing of sins still exists. So we're in this battle, we're in this war, aren't we? Uh, last week we had a few quotes by J.C. Ryle. I just wanted to read a one or two just to kind of remind us of um, this battle we're in that I think we forget. He says, to be at peace with the world, the flesh and the devil, is to be at enmity with God. And in the broad way that leadeth to destruction. We have no choice or option. We must either fight or be lost. He adds this. J.C. Ryle, by the way, was a um, late, mid to late 1800s bishop in England. Reformed, a God, just an amazing preacher. Listen to what this, he, from the same book on holiness, he says, The saddest symptom about many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict and fight in their Christianity. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work, they amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money. They go through a scanty round of formal religious service once or twice every week. But the great spiritual warfare, it's watchings and strugglings, it's agonies and anxieties, it's battles and contests. Of all this, they appear to know nothing at all. That's a problem. Brothers and sisters, that's a problem. If we are in Christ, we're in a battle. We don't get to go read the Bible and it says, love your neighbor, and we go, that would be lovely someday when Jesus just makes that happen for me. No. God's saying now. How is that going to work? Well, he's canceled the law. So when you struggle, you're not condemned. But he's also adopted you. He's come inside of you. He's adopted you, and he's given you his spirit. In verse 15 of 8, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, a sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So here's the, here's the reality. To live in the flesh is to live by myself in isolation. I may look like I'm with people. I may appear to be interacting with other humans. I may be married, all this stuff. I have kids. But I'm trying to get my life to work the way I have planned it according to my scheme. That's the flesh. I'm in my own head, in my own body. You're designed for community. You're designed to be known. In Jeremiah, 
It says, I knew you before I formed you in the womb. God wants to know you, and when you are fully known by God and you know that you're fully loved by him, there's a freedom that comes. In the rest of our lives in the spirit, when we're walking in the spirit, when we aren't, we repent. We confess it. Lord, forgive me. That's the normal Christian life. I ask for forgiveness. But when we're in the spirit, we're in partnership. We, we, we can interact with the Lord. He's, our, he's with us everywhere we go. I saw a sign that said, if God is your auto, or if Jesus is your autopilot, did anyone see this? If Jesus is your autopilot, switch seats. I thought it was really good. You're in the wrong seat. He needs to be driving the car. And so we go to the Lord in prayer. I, Paul invites us, for example, to pray without ceasing. And I've read that, and I would say my entire Christian life I've thought, oh, that's a burden. Do you hear the burden in that? What's the burden? Well, that's because I'm living out of the flesh. I feel like it's a law. It's not a law. It's an invitation. See, we love our cell phones. We love our social media. We are more connected to humans than we've ever been before. If I told you, hey, from now on, starting tomorrow, I need you to call and talk on the phone for 45 minutes tomorrow, send 75 texts, snap 42 people, you know, blah, blah. It's overwhelming. But you do it. You do it anyway. Do you hear the difference? One is fun, and it seems to be life-giving. The other is a burden. And so when the Spirit comes in you and says, A, I love you, you're adopted, and all of your sins have been removed, and B, I'm actually going to help you, like, bring life to all these problem areas of your body. Let's get, let's get at it. All you have to do is begin to pray and, and repent, and we'll work together. That's a glorious promise that Jesus has given us in our adoption. So how does this work? Just for the last few moments, I'm going to try to maybe explain some of this. What do we do to see life brought to our mortal bodies? We're in point number two. What does the Spirit do? He brings the law to life through our effectual calling. That's the doctrine. He, through our justification, removes all the penalty of our sin and gives us the, right, the imputed righteousness of Christ. That is the record of right, righteousness. We're adopted, so now we're not only counted as righteous, we're actually brought into the family of God. We're, we're heirs, we're sons, we're daughters of the king. But he also, set, he also um, invites us to put to death the deeds of the body, and that's our battle. What do you think of when you come to this verse that says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What do you make of that? Let me be clear. He's not saying you will die if you live according to the flesh, like the moment you live according to the flesh, you're just going to just fall flat. He's saying you're going to be living out of the posture of that death we've talked about. Isolation, autonomy, I'm on my own. I'm making all the decisions on my own. He's saying if you live out of the flesh, that's what's going to happen. But when you live by the Spirit, you're going to have life breathed into you. You're going to be tapping into the resource of the Spirit. But how do you do that? So you follow Paul, and he says, well... You, you put to death the deeds of the body. How do I do that? What are the deeds of the body? Let me first ask you, are you aware of the, your deeds that flow from your sin, from your flesh? So that I think one of the steps would be to pay attention to my sin. Like, where am I sinning? Where am I greedy, struggling with sexual sin? I'm using the seven deadly sins, anger, Gossip and laziness and lying and but where do I do these things particularly? 
Why would I want to do that? Because you're not condemned. You're free. Remember last week we talked about you're not the pixel. Our job is to go, Jesus, I think I'm struggling. Look what I did. Will you forgive me? I confess that I did this, but will you show me why I'm doing it? When you track Paul in Romans 8, listen to, the re- listen to how he tells you to put the deeds of the body to death. Verse 14, I'm ready for the technique of Paul. Please tell me, Paul, what I'm supposed to do. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Have you heard a technique? What do you do? How do you put to death? Well, apparently, all of my sin flows out of fear, driven by my flesh, that I'm not safe, that God is not for me. And when I can name that and confess that and turn back to the truth that I am adopted a son, I'm in Christ, the Spirit dwells in me, He goes on in verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you're children of God. What is Paul teaching? That by faith, we realize, okay, wait a minute, all of the things I need are in Christ and I'm safe. And there is life in that because once you know you're safe, once you know you're not gonna be condemned, once you know in a moment, you can't do it once and for all this side of heaven, but in moments where by faith, I'm believing these truths It takes all of the lifeblood out of your sin. It becomes completely undesirable. An example. Have you ever been in an argument and then a flash of love came over you for the person you're arguing with and it took every desire out of the argument? It's just like, oh, I love that person. You know, what happened? Well, the law of love, which is the love of the Lord your God, love your neighbor, this is what the Spirit brings. And when we actually can realize my, that person is not going to take me out, I'm in Christ. In fact, that person, I can begin to have mercy and grace and care for them because I'm already saved. Just like if I've crossed over and now I'm going to help them get over some impediment, I want to actually be the voice of love and care for them because I'm safe because Christ loves me and dwells in me and I am safe. That is one of the primary ways we put the law, the, the deeds of the flesh out. And that's where life comes in. So the good news is you are adopted. The good news is Christ's righteousness has been applied to you in your justification. All these benefits are yours and cheer up. It's a battle you're in. So I'm going to turn back to Romans 5 just for a second as we conclude. I just want you to hear what Paul tells us is coming in Romans 5 which we're now studying in chapter eight. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the the doctrine of justification. We have peace with God, okay? Through him, he goes on, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So there's this moment by moment access to grace that we've been talking about. And then he goes ahead. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The hope for what? That one day, someday, he will return and, or he will, we will go to be with him as we await the return. Does that make sense? That's the glory. Okay. But what, what, this is beautiful. And then he goes on. Not only that, 
There's more. Have you ever seen those infomercials? There's more. What? We rejoice, ready for it, in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. And he says, for God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's chapter 5. And in chapter 8, he's cycling all the way back to those very same truths. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit of God is in you. You have all of the resources you could ever need or want. So what does it mean to suffer? What's so wrong with that? Here's what's wrong with it. God doesn't, no one likes suffering, by the way. It's not like, hey, Christians like suffering. What Christians say, what Paul's teaching is this. Your alternative to suffering is choosing schemes to relieve the tension. Have you ever been in the moment of a temptation? I would love a show of hands. How about this week? Don't, show, don't raise your hand. A temptation came on you, and you decided, I'm going to fight this one. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? That is miserable. That is suffering. Why? Because the promise of the sin is rescue, isn't it? If you do this, you will live. That's what Satan told Adam and Eve, and that's what the flesh and the devil and the world try to tell you. I'm feeling stress. This thing seems like it's going to help. I don't want to fight it. Guess what I'm doing? I'm suffering. And he says, suffer as with patience. And the rest of chapter 8, which we're going to look at in two weeks, really rounds out the fact that we live in this space where our flesh is constantly saying, I don't think God's for you. I think there's some things you can do to take care of yourself. And we're like, no. What do we do? We go to the Lord. Jesus, I, I need you right now. Will you help me know that I have a deep, deep desire that only you can meet? And in that relationship to the triune God, because of his dwelling in your soul, that is abiding in him and he in you. And we can endure the suffering as Paul finishes. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. Will you do these things? Look at your sin patterns because they're trying to kill you. I don't care what it is. And if you think, no, this helps me. This sin pattern actually, sometimes people need this kind of treatment or whatever. It's killing you. It's your flesh going, we got this. Let's take him out. It's the devil conspiring with you in the flesh. Will you name that, take it to the Lord, confess it, and pray that the Spirit would give you a love of the law behind it, the love of your neighbor, the love of God. There's something that's glorious that is in opposition to that sin pattern. Pray that the Spirit will give you that. That's Romans 7. Pray that you'll also understand you're not condemned, Romans 8, by that sin. And that now, because you're not condemned and you're adopted, you can begin to go to the Spirit for the nourishment you were seeking to get from the sin. That is what sanctification looks like. And I invite that to be your process. If you're sitting here and you're going, not interested, you need to really begin to question if you know Jesus. It's a real question. It's not just in the 1800s with J.C. Ryle. It's a severe issue in our present day. A lot of people go through the steps and play the game, but they don't have that relationship with the Holy Spirit. 
The good news is you can. If that even means anything to you right now, you can ask him to come in your heart. You can be born again. and His spirit will come in and make his home with you. And you will have peace that you've never known before. Let's pray. Lord, this gospel is too much. Too much to put into simple words, but you did it. You did it through Jesus, through your spirit giving the words to the writers of scripture, through your spirit illuminating those words to the lives of those you've saved. But Lord, I pray any word that I've said that has not been in conformity with your gospel would be removed. Let the truth of your gospel sink in, that you seek and save your own. You are the good shepherd. And Lord, we don't have to jump around and do all sorts of schemes to get in. We simply rest in you and confess you are God. You are the son of God. We believe. We ask you to enter our lives. And Lord, for Christians who already believe, help us to really see our repentance feels very much the same. That we come to these places where we're fighting and we're trying to do it on our own, just like an unbeliever in those places. Even though we're already saved, there's a temptation so often to live as if we're not. Teach us to repent, even as if it was the first time to come to you and just cry out for your mercy and for you to give us life to our mortal bodies while we long for our immortality in you. Amen.